Welcome back to the only podcast scientifically proven to make owls perk up their ears and say, hoot, hoot, hoot. Beethoven walks into a bar. I'm Stephanie Brimhall, the Symphony's Director of Education and Community Engagement. And I'm Mike Gordon, Principal Flute of the Kansas City Symphony. So today we're going to be talking with two-time Grammy award-winning mezzo-soprano, guest soloist with the Kansas City Symphony, and featured performer at Mike's college graduation, Sasha Cook. Wait, Mike, really? That's what <laughs> that's what you put in here. You don't you didn't want me to talk about her international career or performances with many of the greatest living artists of our time, her new solo album, the fact that she is not a conductor for once on this podcast. None of those things made the cut. Well, well look now, we're gonna get to all that, but uh but the real story here is that she doesn't have a third Grammy from the 2004 Rice University commencement, because that that is just a scandal, and we need to dig deeper into that. Um, so uh, we've had, you know, many conductors on this podcast as well, uh, low these many months, and, and they've been great conversations. And uh, astute listeners uh, may have noticed that we promised a conversation with Michael Stern for this episode. I can assure you that conversation will be coming soon. But Sasha is such a versatile and compelling artist, uh, whom I had the pleasure of knowing way back when, and with whom I've had the chance to reconnect just a couple of times here in Kansas City. We could not miss the opportunity to welcome her as a guest on today's podcast. So, Sasha, welcome. It is so great to have you with us. So awesome to be here. Thanks, you guys. So, wait, I have to know, what did you sing at Mike's graduation? You know, Mike probably remembers. It was <laughs> Mike like does a not remember. <laughs> Michael! I feel, like it was, I feel like it was a Schubert song or something, you know, Sasha perfectly cheesy. I don't remember. <laughs> <laughs> Well, nonetheless, I'm sure it was lovely, and I have to—I have to be honest. I'm a little bit jealous be- that Mike has another uh, another lady that he's uh, celebrated oh. so so much fun in at, at Rice and has fond Rice memories with. Because I'm one of those ladies too. I didn't know this. <laughs> it's it's all Rice here today. I love that. Sasha sang it at Mike's graduation, but I played on Mike's junior recital. So there's that. How That's did true. <laughs> Mike, I don't know if you, you never played on one of my recitals. How did I not make that happen? I, I don't know. I'm what offended. is wrong with me? <laughs> I'm offended, but I don't know the answer to that. Uh, I think we should I make don't... it happen now. I think we should just, right? you guys okay. should schedule a recital together. Yes. I'm and ready. everyone's free time. Done. <laughs> <laughs> I took advantage of all the players around me. You know, I always had chamber pieces on my recitals because I'm like, guys, when are you going to have these fat, phenomenal violinists, you know, players free? On exactly. your program. So that's that was my plan. Exactly. So we've talked a lot about pandemic projects here on this on this podcast. And your new Grammy Award winning album, How Do I Find You, could be described as a pandemic project of sorts. True. Uh, it features music from a host of today's most relevant composers, including a few we've had as guests on our podcast, Caroline Shaw and Gabe Kahane, Nico Muley, Joel, Joel Thompson have all joined us here on the podcast. Um, how did you pull all of these artists together for this project? It was really sort of a gut instinct project in that I just, the people that came to mind, I immediately called. So once the idea happened to reach out to composers and create a project together, the list of those composers just came very um, spontaneously. I didn't do a big 
I probably should have done a bigger survey. I didn't listen to 100 people. I had a short list in my mind. I had people I admired for years. I also thought, why not offer it to composers in their 40s and under, both because they could use the work and because I liked seeing a different part of the um, com- compositional sort of landscape. Um, so often I work with composers that are a bit older, you know, in their later chapters of their careers. And I, and I really wanted to work with younger composers. So, um, I was on unemployment. I was, you know, losing job after job after job. Um, and I didn't know how long that period was going to be. And then George Floyd happened and a lyricist friend sent me a poem, uh, based on George Floyd. And I said, well, let's, let's reach out to a composer. And we did. And we made this song, which was so incredible. I thought, oh my gosh, I have to do this. We have to do more of this. Reaching out to artists and seeing what they want to create. So that was the sort of the inspiration, a kind of carte blanche. And I didn't say, um, Joelle Thompson, will you write a piece on this? It's like, what do you want to write about? Um, I have this friend who's a lyricist that I would love for you to meet, Gene Shear. And he's like, oh, I've wanted to work with Gene for a long time. I'm like, cool, let's do a song together. And that's sort of like Gabe, Gabe Gahane. It's like, Gabe... Um, his inspiration was more personal. It was about his family. It was about writing about being alone in Portland with his family and looking at nature and all of the noise on television because he had just finished that sort of um, break from media where he was sort of, you know, you you guys probably talked about it. Anyhow, so that was it. Uh, And all supported by a couple that I met in San Francisco years ago that said, we really want to commission something for you. And I was like, wow. So I remembered that invitation and in the midst of this dark pandemic period, just reached out and said, why don't we ask multiple composers instead of one? And they were so keen. Never did we imagine getting a Grammy nomination. Didn't see that coming. Um, And it was one of the best things I've ever done. You know, Caroline Shaw's song, I really was like, is it going to come? Is it going to come, Caroline? I don't know. (laughs) I almost Because Caroline's just very booked. You know, she's super busy. And she, like Mike, you know, I've known for a really long time. So I'm thrilled that it ended up that she sent us a song. And hers has a very sweet story because she said, Sasha, you know, I've just been inspired watching you on social media, you know, singing and accompanying yourself, basically playing to your kids. I want to write something that you can play and sing. So then skip ahead months later, and I have this song on my piano. And my youngest daughter comes in and she's like, this is my favorite one. And I was like, Little do you know, you're part of the inspiration for this very song, which I love. Aww. That's so fast. I mean, you brought together such an incredible um, group of composers, and, and it's amazing that each of them wrote something something original for this album. And as you're talking about this, I mean, for, for our listeners' sake, um, we're on Zoom here, so I'm seeing Sasha in, in her studio there in front of the piano. And I can remember seeing your videos, uh, you know, of songs you recorded just in your studio there um, during the pandemic when we were all stuck at home. Uh, and, you know, you created such beautiful music, you know, right there in your studio. And I love I love that you made this album, which is sort of a, you know, a, a refined, a perfected version of that, of that impetus, I think, because... Um, you know, we talked we talked with another wonderful guest, oh, I don't know, a year or two ago, this wonderful jazz trumpet player, Herman Mahari, who's who's uh, from here in Kansas City. And he, he had a pandemic project, too. He recorded a whole solo album in a barn in France. Mm-hmm. Wow. You know, so it's just it's just amazing to hear these stories about what came from that period. Uh, it's it's just incredible. Well, it's interesting because like there's the art, which now I'm sort of reflecting on, like 
because I have the program coming up in New York in a couple weeks, I was like, yeah, I'm just going to listen to it. I hadn't listened to the CD in a long time. And it was like, oh, wow, this song is beautiful. And I just sort of heard it anew. But the biggest takeaway, even more so than that, was what it taught me was that don't wait. Don't wait for the phone to ring. Call the people you want to work with. Like, make the projects happen. Because I think... um, a lot of, you know, when you're coming up in the career, when you're starting, we're just waiting. You know, we don't instigate. We don't start the um, initiate, I should say. Um, I took this position at a summer program, Music Academy of the West. And I'm looking at these statistics for young musicians coming out of colleges. I'm like, what do we give the next generation that is essential that we didn't need as much? I mean, it still was hard when we were coming up. But it's even harder now in a new way. And I think it's that. It's that everyone should be their own producer. Everyone should just make the projects happen. Get on YouTube. Put the content that you want to create out in the world. Let it be known. Like, I look at all the Mahler I've done. I'm like, why do I do so much Mahler? Is it because you sort of just hear, oh, yeah, that mezzo, she does it. And I bet it kind of is a little bit. Sure. Or it's like, who's on YouTube singing Mahler too? Oh, Sasha Cook, let's book her. You know, this is the way people think. So if we can sort of steer the narrative and say, you know, I really want to do this project with Nico Muley. And then someone, it's just it's that it's like planting seeds. I, I, you know? I love that. So we were going to talk about this a little bit later, but since you kind of led us there, let's, let's dig into this because I think, uh, and our producer Tim will nod and smile if I'm correct about this. I think you are the first singer we have had on this podcast that I can mm-hmm. recall. Uh, if not the first, we haven't had one in quite a while. But I think actually the first. Um, and so we've talked a lot about you know the career path of a orchestral musician. We've talked a lot about the career path of a conductor. But it's so it's so very much different for singers. And I think I think what you're saying is actually so applicable potentially to orchestral players um, in a way that we don't think about. So, so I want to dig into this a little bit more. I mean, how, how do you get to be you? I mean, I, I, we were in school together and then, and then we, you know, went on different life journeys. uh, And I know I took lots of auditions and I ended up in the Kansas city symphony, but it's not quite so straightforward uh, for a singer. So talk, talk about that a little bit and then, and then get back to this idea of initiative, because I think, I think it is, it's hard. It's a hard, uh, barrier to get over, I think. And yet so many people, once they sort of give themselves the freedom to do that, it's so um, possibilities open in, a, in an exciting way. Yeah. And, and just to quickly say one thing I love about it is that it informs a certain part of yourself that is useful, whether you do music or not. It accesses a certain skill set, just thinking in a different way, like, what is my story? What do I bring? The why. Why am I here? Why do I want to play in a symphony? Why do I want to be on an opera stage? What do I want to offer the music industry? I think that those sound like simple questions, but we don't ask often enough. I honestly don't know why am I, why I am me, why I've arrived here, why I have Grammys, why I sing a lot of new music. I'm still figuring it out. Um, I will say, looking back, that you know, speaking of Mike G, I went to the chamber music concerts. I went to the orchestra concerts. I love symphony concerts. I think at some point a singer said to me, why are you going to Mahler's Titans? I'm like, because it's fabulous. Is there a connection between all of that and then singing it? I think so. I think that I cared about that world that I was interested also that I was first an instrumentalist. Like, I think all of that's connected. A lot of orchestra musicians or conductors will say, 
oh, you're like a, you're like an instrumentalist singer. I'm like, what does that mean? Or they'll say, you're like a clarinet in a singer's body. I'm like, what does that mean? And I think they mean, you know, my rhythm is good. My pitch is good. You know, you play piano, right? Am I remembering yeah. that? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I played piano first and then a bit of viola, but piano was my main instrument. And then I was super shy. I did not sing out in choir. I certainly didn't think I would be a singer. Um, and at some point I had to decide between piano and voice. And I remember when I told my piano teacher, like, I think I'm going to go to Rice for voice. She was like, ah, oh. and I was like, well, it's okay. You know, I'm thinking it's okay. I'm going to keep it up. Of course, it's hard to keep up both. And my mm-hmm. piano's really, um, gone back, but actually during the pandemic was great because I just got to dive back into piano rep and just what I, what I love, you know, like I'm always learning the piece that I'm doing next, not always the piece that I want to do next, you know? Um, so I think that being a good person, being kind, showing up prepared, uh, not wasting time. And I think being curious, like even at Rice, speaking of, there were composers that said, Hey, Sasha, will you sing this new piece I'm doing? I'm like, sure. I think that's connected too, because skip ahead to 2007, I'm at the young artist program of the Met and I come into the coaching room of my mentor and he says, oh, John Adams just called. He wants you to sing the lead in his opera. I'm like, yeah. what? How does he know my name? And I hadn't met him. I don't think he'd heard me live that I know of. So probably it was that network of composers and network that we're always weaving and we don't know it, you know? Right. So um, that's why I think I'm me. And I also... It's interesting, the Music Academy position, when they offered it to me, they said, we love your versatility. We love that you're in opera, but you're in concert and that you have a family. And I thought, how interesting that these are assets, because I don't necessarily think of them that way. When you're particularly a singer, the grass is always greener. You're like, I should be doing those roles or I should be singing there. Or I should be... Because one big difference, of course, is we don't have security. So if you're in the Kansas City Symphony, you have security, you unfortunately all your eggs are in one basket. So if there is, you know, a major financial, you know, upheaval or a pandemic, which would never happen (laughs) (laughs) all these places. And I think that's what we learned from the pandemic was nothing is sure. You know, I hate to use the word, but the word that came to me at the time was I'm expendable. Like even a person at the top, quote unquote, like, you know, comfortably in the career, I should say is expendable. Nothing's certain. And so we're always auditioning. Singers are meeting new people all the time. You're constantly auditioning. Even if you have some, you know, clout, you're being analyzed, you're being scrutinized. Your physical self is being picked apart. You know, we don't have the, what's it called? Green screen with the screen that you guys audition behind. Yeah. We're audition <laughs> screens. That's right. Yeah. Blind. Which is, yeah, which is awesome. You know, we don't have that as singers. Our physical selves are part of our packages and our brands. So no wonder we're crazy. No wonder we're, you know, no wonder. Um, But it's like, I always tell students, I'm like, you have to be naked. Like you have to be vulnerable and real and there. And that means you have to take care of yourself. Like if your mental health is not well, it's just, you, it's just synced up with your artistic self. Like they cannot be separated. We're not one of those professions where you can leave your personal life at the door. Yeah. You know, you said um, 
when you when you are at Rice and you're going to a variety of performances, you know, you're going to hear the orchestra, you're going to go hear chamber music. I think that's um, what I found as a student and then as a teacher as well was, and I've said it on the podcast before, realizing that like I'm a clarinet student, but that doesn't mean that I'm not going to get something out of a cello master class or a, you know, a, a voice class or you know, yeah. And I bring this up. For two reasons, one because I th- I think it's important to know that like you know you can pick things up as a as a clarinetist from a cello master class that you would never get from a clarinet class, but will make you a, tr- a tremendously better performer. Mm. Joyce DiDonato has been here a handful of times and has done some just incredible master classes where you know the whole audience is just picking up stuff. Um, and so, and which is another reason I'm actually really looking forward to this week and having you here because you're doing a class with us on Saturday. Super excited. Yeah. Yeah. Can you talk a little bit about how you approach that kind of setting? And like, you know, obviously we're, we're working with voice students on stage, but how do you um, approach it? Do you approach it any differently than you would, you know, just a private lesson one-on-one with that student, knowing that you have an audience full of a variety of musicians out in the in the crowd that are hoping to pick up something. Yeah, I think I might not get as personal, not that I have to get super personal in a private lesson, but in a private lesson you can not worry about the student's embarrassment or getting into something that's deeper. I think in a class I like to offer something that is helpful both to the student on the stage and then everyone in the audience. Mm-hmm. So I tend to do things that um, deal with support, uh, breath, technique. You know, I don't want to get into the head too much or the mouth or those sort of small details. I kind of want to get into the body. So I'll do physical work through movement, usually, um, that you can immediately renders a positive result And then I hope that those that are watching, those singers that don't get to be on the stage can actually do those things because they're easily memorable. Um, And it's a short time. So I always think, how do I offer the most possible in this short time I have with this human? You know, and I tend to be super honest. Sometimes it's diction. Like sometimes that's the the most important thing Um, because I, I have nothing to hide. So I consider myself basically the audition panel. So if this... Soprano is coming into the room. What is she lacking that's just vital that she has before the next audition? So I usually pass on that. Mm-hmm. I think a lot of young musicians get sort of obsessed with their sound and they forget about the why, about what they're saying. And so often the the meaning, the narrative, the drama, the poetry is the key to unlock it all, like mm-hmm. diction, technique, sound. So I sort of like to get the singers out of their head because they tend to be in their head to some extent. And then the wonderful thing about being a singer is the older you get, the better it gets. Yeah. You're more and more in your body. And I'm living that myself. I'm like, when you're 20, you just can't know where those muscles are exactly. And that's okay. You know, we're going to find them. But it's about kind of putting them on the path that leads them there. I love that you guys have had all these conductors because I think there are a lot of connections between singers and conductors because not to say that a violinist doesn't have innate or inherited aspects that make them a better musician because I think they do. And I think we all have like a story, but I I've seen wonderful people who are super prepared and should have conducting careers, but the orchestra doesn't take them seriously. Or singers who have done all the work, all the degrees, they have a nice instrument, no career. 
So to me, like there is a connection between like a certain je ne sais quoi, a certain personality, a certain dynamism, you know, stage animalness that makes a conductor have a career, makes a singer have a career. Like if you're a singer who has really major anxiety and you cannot just like let loose, it's going to be hard. Like it's going to be hard. You just, you have to be a stage animal. Like all of the career, all of the singers that had careers are someone on stage. They're not the mezzo soprano instrument. They are a personality. They're, you know, a character of themselves. But if you don't have that, it's just going to be hard. And I say the same for conductors, you know, mm -hmm. if you get up on the podium and there's doubt, if there's self-analysis, we see through it. The orchestra sees. They, they like, what do they say, Mike? They make a decision in like point negative millisecond. Like, doesn't orchestra? Oh, no. I usually decide before they walk in the room. <laughs> <laughs> no, yeah. you're, you're right. I mean, it's, a, it's an interesting thing that you talk about. And I think there's a, a connection there to, to soloists as well. Certainly chamber musicians versus, you know, more strictly orchestra players. Because, of course, for us... I mean, there's nothing better than wa watching an orchestra of, of people who look, you know, totally committed and totally engaged, you know, but th there's sort of a collective personality that you can not hide within, but live within, you know, you don't have to be that stage animal to use your word, but a soloist, you know, it's, it, it's similar. You could be the most incredible violinist in the world. Yeah. You might become a well-known soloist, but the, you know, the, the ones whose names, you know, they're incredible musicians, but they're also just this uh, magnetic personality on stage. And it's it's hard to know how to define that, especially for instrumentalists, because we don't speak. You know, we're not assuming specific characters, per se. Uh, mm -hmm. We're not telling a, a definite uh, story most of the time. And yet, those elements are there, and, and mm. they need that. It's why, you know, Josh Bell is famous. It's why Yo-Yo is famous. It's why, mm -hmm. you know the list goes on. Um, so yeah, you, you raise, you raise such an interesting thought there. Mm -hmm. um, but, but I, I want to talk a little bit about, about opera performance specifically, um, which you, you kind of led toward because I mean, there are two things that, that interest me about this, at least two, there may be more than two things that are interesting <laughs> about opera performance, but, but starting with two, number one, just the number of things going on that you're responsible for as a, as an opera performer. And I say this, you know, largely for the sake of our listeners to think about if they haven't thought about it before you're, you're singing. So you have to know the, the words to the songs and you have to know, <laughs> you know, you have to know the score and you're more often than not probably singing in a foreign language uh, or at least not your native language. Yeah. Uh, and then, and then there are also the aspects of it that, you know, are shared by, by, stage actors. You have to know that you're blocking where to be on the stage at any mm -hmm. given moment. You have to, you know, be acting physically, right? With your, you know, with your body and your facial expressions and all of that, like you said. And and you're doing all of these things at the same time. It's all memorized. And a show can be three hours, four hours, five hours, you know, depending on depending on what it is. It just seems like this um Herculean task. And then you specifically tend to do a lot of new stuff. You, you mentioned, um, you know, one of your first breakout things was uh, with Adams. Uh, it was Dr. Atomic, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, Adams just to play in the, in the pit for his, his uh, music or, or on the stage for his concert pieces. 
even with the music in front of you, it's impossible. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, recently, we did um, we did the, the Revolution of Steve Jobs, uh, Mason Bass's opera. We did here in Kansas City, but you you originated, I, I think, mm-hmm. uh, yeah. the, the role of Lorene. Uh, Pal Jobs for that show. So talk a little bit about some of these challenges. And then when you add to that, the challenge of new music, which honestly, sometimes, but certainly not always has, you know, a lack of memorable tunes that everyone in the audience is going to be singing in the shower the next morning. Like, how do you just compress all this information into your brain and do it? Yeah. It's like, I I tell, uh, I have this sort of silly metaphor, kind of think of Thanksgiving dinner, you know, your throat is one is your oven and you have like 20 dishes that have to go into the oven. But you know, with the time of all those, those cookings, you know, like some need a month, some need a year, some need a week. Like I'm thinking about a job in 2024. I'm like, oh, you're behind on that translation. You need to be working on that script now because then you want to, this to be memorized, this to be memorized. It's like you said, there are all these layers. So it's about the preparation of the layers. Did you absorb the text in the right order? Did you absorb the music in the right order? Are you ready for the rehearsal room to play and have fun and no longer count? Now are you ready for the layer of costume and orchestra and thinking about, you know, projecting into the hall, interacting with your colleagues? You're not thinking of rhythm or pitch anymore, you know? So it's like preparation, preparation, preparation. That's the thing about being a singer. I would say that's true about all instruments. But we are the only flesh instrument. So we can't practice eight hours a day. I mean, we do. We have opera rehearsal from usually 10 a.m. to 6 p.m., but you're marking a lot of the time or you're in a scene where you're not singing all the time. Um, But you're right. The opera world is a very unique beast. And most people don't realize how much rehearsal it takes because they live in a different world where you show up, you have a couple rehearsals and then showtime. We have like weeks of rehearsal because of all of those layers, you know, meeting the players, meeting the creative team, uh, integrating it all. It's a lot. Um, so it's super fun. What I love about opera is that slow process, because when you arrive for a job, you get to live in that world that the room of those people, the musical world the dramatic world, the role you're playing, you get to live in that person for a couple months, which is super fun. Whereas in concert work, it's much more piecemeal. So it can be wonderful in certain ways, but harder in others because you're traveling like every week or you're traveling another five days or you're singing another different repertoire. So your throat has to be more flexible. Whereas in opera, your throat gets to get really situated in a certain role and that's really nice for the flesh instrument, you know. Um, I love it. I love being someone else. It's very different than symphony or recital. I try to like let the t- let the three teach each other. So I learn things in opera that I try to bring to symphony and vice versa. Um, what else can I tell you about it? Like for a student, it is about the order of events. So you do not start learning the piece until you have translated every word. Mm -hmm. So you see it as a script. You start making some choices. Then you start getting to the harmonic language. And then maybe after that, you start getting to the vocal technical side. And maybe others would go in a different order. I just feel like if you don't put it into the computer in the right way, it is muscle memory. Like if I learn it as pitches first, I'm going to think about it as pitches when I perform it. 
But if I learn it as a story first, then I'm going to live a story when I perform it. So, I mean, I'm a music, I'm a music person. Like there are singers that love poetry first. I like, I have to really slow down because I just want to jump on the piano and just play it all and sing it. I'm like, blah, 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 blah. I'm like, no, 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 slow down, slow down, slow down. What is this about? <laughs> What's happening? What does it mean? You know, and the way that the kind of the brain action is you're taking these words in a foreign language and you're merging them with the literal translation, then maybe kind of the layman sort of, you know, free verse poetic translation that I'm going to have in my brain. And then I'm going to make it Sasha translation. So it's not going to be the lilacs last bloomed. It's going to be maybe my grandmother passing away, you know? So you do these layers to get to the kernel of the story that will be the most potent. What will make you the most interesting artist? Well, the most potent, true lived experience, not a uh, literal, sure. you know, not dictionary. I, I think that that's such an important point you make about understanding the literal meaning of the text, but then going a step further with it. And, and that's so applicable to, to instrumental music too. I mean, I talk about this all the time. There, there are musicians who, who follow the markings on the page dutifully uh, and, and play beautifully. And then there are those who look at the page and, and see what the composer wrote and then imagine in their head, what, what maybe did the composer hear in their head or what do you take from what the composer wrote? What do you hear in your head? And then you play what's in your head. So it's like an extra step mm. in a way. Yeah. I think, I, I think that's what you're getting at. And it's so relevant um, to singing. It's just as relevant to instrumental playing. Yeah. Like they, they put it on the page and we take it off the page again. If we don't yeah. take it off the page, like um, my first Carnegie recital, the last line of the review was, composers are going to be banging down her door. And I remember being like, why? What, what did I do? What, what, what says composer about me? And I think it's, you just, you just reminded me of that because I feel like it's about making it your own. Mm-hmm. One of my um, favorite things as of late, because we're doing a lot of in-school concerts, we've talked about that on the podcast here several times, but one of my favorite things to do right now, we'll take a, a chamber group into an elementary school and play something for them and have the kids, you know, preface it by just saying, I want you to listen to this. And then I want you to think like, what is the music saying to you? Like what, if the music was telling a story, what would that, what story would that music be telling? And then they would play it. And then afterwards, you know, raise your hand if you want to tell us your story. And it kind of blows the kids' minds that there are so many different stories that come out of just one tune. One could be about a rocket ship in space and another could be about a girl dancing through a meadow and you know i mean and it's the same tune but you're right i mean we do that as performers and we also do that as listeners where we bring our own perspectives and our own experiences into the things that we're performing and listening to that's like what i love more than anything else like i love it so much that and i think it's honestly one of our greater challenges in the classical industry because people think it's elitist They think they should know something. They think they're ill-prepared. And it's like, no, whatever you're experiencing is 100% right. It's whatever it is for you. Like, you don't need to know anything. And I feel like there is this illusion that we do. 
Like, oh, you don't know Hindemith is? Oh, you you can't come. It's like, what? Right. Well, that's what makes it so special, too, is that you can go to one concert and then, you know, you could hear the same piece a year later and you're in a different place in your life and you've had different experiences over that year and you have a completely different experience, you know, with a new performer and a new, you know, but the same piece. Mm -hmm. Um, it's, It's just, yeah. We've mentioned Hindemith now. We've talked about lilacs a little. We've hinted at lilacs, and we've hinted at Hindemith. Can you talk a little bit about um, the program this weekend and what you're here, what you're here doing? I'm super excited because it's a new piece for me. I had never even heard of it uh, when Kansas City asked, and it's incredibly beautiful, and it's it's really wonderful to sing. I I also always love singing Whitman settings because. They're sort of uniquely suited for music, the kind of nuance and symbolism and like we're talking about, like everyone can have a different experience. I think that's very true of Whitman. And this is my first time singing Hindemith. I have like music sitting on my piano by him and I've probably heard lots of pieces, but I've never sung anything. Um, This is about Abraham Lincoln. So for those that are coming, I think that's helpful to know because unless you know the Whitman poem, although it is a very famous one, you wouldn't necessarily know that. Um, Another fun fact is that Robert Shaw commissioned it, which I think is really cool. So wouldn't have existed otherwise if it weren't for that person reaching out to an artist they admired and, you know, having this written. Um, Baritone soloist, mezzo soloist, and then a really gorgeous choral part. And I would imagine, I mean, I'll have to ask you guys after the week, but I would think the players love this because it's so different than what you normally play. It's sort of my, my impression of the orchestra part is that it is like, it's very chamber music, not to say any orchestra part isn't, but it's sort of soloistic for players Mm -hmm. um, and experimental. Like sometimes when I'm playing it, I want to change it because I'm like, no, that's too weird. Why did he write that? <laughs> but if we really follow the score, it's 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 it out there, you know, in a way. And it's very colorful. I'd say musically, and I'm mainly talking about my part because that's what I've been sort of immersed in, but it reminds me of Copeland and Barber and Crumb, kind of. Hmm. Um, also, this piece, like many others gives the mezzo, you know, this certain kind of siren-esque, poetic, introspective part. Like, I so often get to be the sort of subdued lyrical voice. I don't know how to describe it better. Um, and this is particularly beautiful for mezzo. Yeah, I'm I'm super looking forward to it as well. It's a, it's a piece that um, is also unfamiliar to me and probably unfamiliar to most of my colleagues. Uh, we certainly play a lot of Hindemith and on the, the orchestra stage, uh, you know, we play the symphonic metamorphosis a lot. We play the Mathis de Mahler a lot. Um, you know, we, as a wind player, uh, we play his woodwind quintet, uh, his sonata <laughs> for flute. Um, so, you know, I'm familiar with him in those contexts. I've never, I've never played a vocal work of his that I can think of. And this piece, of course, uh, as you said, is so interesting because the the text is you know kind of a, an elegy for Lincoln, uh, but Shaw commissioned it, I believe, um, to be a, a sort of a requiem for FDR, actually. Uh, so i I think it's um, I think it's just a 
a, a stunning thing to think about that this, um, you know, German immigrant, uh, and this was written, I guess, oh, I can't tell you the year. We'll have to go to Wikipedia, maybe around 1950 or slightly earlier, mm-hmm. but after, mm-hmm. after FDR died, obviously. Um, it's just a stunning thing to think about in that period of time uh, where this, you know, this German immigrant, I think Hindemith was a citizen by the time mm. uh, he wrote the piece, a U.S. citizen, that he would be the one to, in some way, memorialize historic, you know, not one, but in a way, two historic figures um, at pivotal moments in American history is incredible. And I think it speaks um, in a very direct way to things that are happening in the world now. So I don't want to stroke Michael Stern's ego too much for having programmed it, but uh, but I think it's I think it's a really interesting work to yeah. do right now. And I love anything mm-hmm. that I haven't done before because it's yeah it's new. Well, and to what Stephanie said earlier, maybe. Hindemith was thinking about someone else, mm-hmm. you know, it was a requiem for someone else for him. I love that, like the layers, you know. Yeah. And that's the beauty of the text too. There's no, there's no real direct reference to Lincoln, right? You wouldn't know it's about Lincoln unless you knew it was about Lincoln. And mm-hmm. that's, that's the beauty of music. And I think the beauty of a lot of poetry is that it means to you, whatever it means to you. Totally. Totally. Yeah. I, I know you guys had Teddy Abrams on, and he did a piece with me by Mason Bates, which was a setting of Whitman's passage to India. But we used, or I should say Mason used, uh, JFK's moonshot speech cut up into pieces so that the two overlay each other, and they so go together, like going off to the moon and then the passage at the end of the poem. And we had a great time doing it. And I just, it's like this conversation gets really sort of uh, meta. <laughs> it's like you're in this other space, you know, that's where we want to be, right? That's why we go to concerts. You know what I think is is really neat? And maybe I'm just kind of hyper-focused on it right now because we've done a lot of talking about playing new music, to new to us music, but music that's not necessarily new. So this Hindemith is an example of that. But Mike, what was it we, oh, the, the Ligeti that nobody had played with um, Matthias Pinscher. Yeah, the uh, um, the San Francisco polyphony. Yeah. I mean, so we've had, but I guess I think what's really been exciting about this season specifically has been kind of discovering these pieces that have been around. We're, they're just new to us and they're new to most of us. Um, so this idea of new music kind of takes on a new meaning a little bit, you know, there's, there's new music written this year and then there's new to us music Mm -hmm. as well. And I think, um, I think that's a really cool thing that's kind of come out of this season also. That's awesome. You're a singer. I understand you're married to a singer. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, so this, this idea as, you know, as, as a soloist, um, you're traveling a lot, you are, all over the place. I, where where are you recording from right now? I'm from home in Texas, near Houston. Awesome. Yes. Mm-hmm. So um, you're in Texas. You'll be in KC tomorrow. Um, we'll be mm-hmm. doing a, a week of shows, um, and then I'm sure you're you know around various places throughout the year. How do you how do you juggle that um, with a family as well? Because I understand you mentioned your daughter earlier. Mm-hmm. Um, how do how do you guys do that? And um, especially with two of you being being a singer, mm-hmm. uh, being both being singers, how how do you guys make that work? Yeah, it's not easy. I mean, I like the ways in which it tests us. You know, I like that when I'm gone, my daughters get closer to their dad, and vice versa, and that there's a certain relationship that wouldn't exist if I were there. Um, 
I also like the independence it gives my kids. So they sort of figure out that, yes, I am my own human being and they're their own human beings and we don't have to be enmeshed. Um, but also it takes a really great partner. So if you have a partner who's going to have issues holding down the fort or jealousy or um, all those things. So it's that's that's the crucial is... Yeah. And they do definitely don't have to be a musician, but in this case, it's helpful because he also understands that side of it, you know, that, yeah, it's taxing physically, you know. Um, I was listening to a Brene Brown podcast recently, and she mm-hmm. would go on tour or whatever, come home, and her husband's depleted and she's depleted. So they would say, well, okay, what are you at? Oh, I'm at about a 40. Oh, I'm at about a 45%. It's like finding each other where you're at and saying, okay, we both actually need self-care. What do we need? You know, and when I come home, I try to not do work. So I try to not need to go to the piano too much. Of course, I do practice, but ideally I try to practice extra on the road. So when I get home, I can just play and do errands and cook and like linger. Um, So that requires calendar. Yep. Like looking at the calendar. Like, so I'm not working on Hindemith right now. I'm like, I already knew that, right? I did that weeks ago. I mean, I am doing it, but you know what I mean? It's like, how do you put the dishes into the oven in the right order so that you can sit back and enjoy life? And um, I tell I tell singers this in master classes. I was like, when you, when you arrive at the job, you want to find the cool coffee spot, the nice restaurant, hang out with your soprano soloist colleague. Like, you don't want to be counting or figuring out where you enter in the piece, you know? So um, same applies with family. And then also like having the bravery to say no to a job Mm. if you can't do it. Like, for instance, there was going to be a really wonderful tour with a chamber ensemble I absolutely love next fall. But I'm home like five days or 10 days between now and November. And I was like, that would be kind of crazy. So the balance requires, unfortunately, that I have to pass on that. Yeah. opportunity. And if I were a robot, I would say yes, but I'm not a robot. So <laughs> I feel like every four years I hit a wall and it's usually because of doing too much. And, and I'm always like, oh, why did I do it again? Why did I pack it in? But sometimes you can't know what's too much until you have too much. Until it's too much. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And, and my kids also are healthy. Like I think if I had a child with a problem or, you know, a disability of some sort, my life would be very different. Sure. And um, we live in a very safe environment. The schools are good. Uh, we have community support. So like if I need a friend to pick up my kid from school because my husband's singing down at the opera house, like that can work. Like how lovely is that? So, yeah. but I know opera singers that travel with their kids. Mm-hmm. I know people that never see their spouses, like, you know, a year goes by. I know people that, yeah, travel. It's just, it's, it's different for everybody. Mm-hmm. We have a certain, like, maximum. Like, we we can do two weeks comfortably, maybe three. But after that, it's like, nope, that's not going to work. So, like, I have a, we're doing Revolution of Steve Jobs in San Francisco. And right after it, I do The Diving Bell and the Butterfly, another you know, new new work. So I'm like, okay, how are we going to make this work, family? Okay, well, I'm going to come home here on this break, and you guys are going to come to San Francisco for a week, sure. and the girls are going to miss school. So it's 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 not easy, um, and I would I would say if you don't love music, like love, 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 like why would you do this? You know, right. 
you're you're shaking every foundation. Like all your friendships get tested too. Friends like, oh, I guess I'm not going to see you for two months. It's like, no, 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 that's not going to work. The friend has to say, when are you next here? Let's make a date. Yeah. And you too have to say, oh, can I see you in May on the 11th? You know, and so it's it's all planning and and then I think not being too perfectionist. Like, you know, if I my dress is not perfect, who cares? If, you know, my high C wasn't as solid, that's okay. If I were like an obsessive musician, like then probably this life would not work, you know, but I can sort of I'm okay with my 75%, you know, for sure. I, I love the, you know, I'm not a robot thing. That's a kind of a mantra that um, a colleague of mine in the office. So I, you know, I'm in the administration, but a colleague of mine in the office are always like human beings work here. It's this is not just a robot. <laughs> it's not I click this. And then I immediately get a response for this because you know, that's human beings work here. <laughs> so like, I am a human, I'm going to you know, I'm going to make mistakes and I'm going to be okay with, you know, yeah. with however it comes out as long as I, you know, as long as in the end I feel good about how things are happening. And you're right, you have to love it. If you you spend far too much time doing, you know, doing it and to not love it. I mean, it's not it's not worth that for sure. Yeah, I was actually at Rice teaching a masterclass and a girl raised her hand and she said, um, I think about being a secretary every day. And I was like, that's your gut instinct. It's talking to you and it's right. And it's probably not going to get quieter. Sure. You know, there's so many things you think in school that are different than the life of living it. And I like to say too, like most humans, speaking of humans, have like seven chapters in their lives. We don't have to be musicians. It's just like this thing because we've invested all the money, we've invested all the time and it's sort of our identity, you know, it's like, what? can't I'd stop do something else you know which like the pandemic I was like what else could I do to make money I'm like should I go work <laughs> at Starbucks like what should I do <laughs> we've all worked at Starbucks at some point right no nope, yes. just me that's it okay <laughs> I've done other things but not Starbucks <laughs> yeah me too <laughs> I I love that I mean I we this conversation could go on uh forever honestly I mean I have such a fond memory. I think it was either, I think you were here maybe shortly after your first daughter was born. Yeah. Uh, first you, job. I first think job. That was, yeah. I think that was the first, maybe the only time I met your husband. I can't recall. Uh, and I just remember you being here and, you know, of course, uh, singing exquisitely as you always do. But then as soon as you came off the stage, you know, your daughter was back in the dressing room and your husband was kind of tending to her. And then you'd, you'd go back into mom mode. And I just thought, oh, well, how... How phenomenal is that? And it was it was just beautiful. And I'm so I'm so glad that your your career is gone where it is gone, and that your family is well, and that um, you were just producing incredible art and uh, and appear to be and appear to be loving it. So I'm super happy for you for that. And um, the only other uh, order of business here is that well, there's maybe two further orders of business. If you read the the fine print on your podcast contract. <laughs> Um, it's very fine print, uh, but but we're we're required to do a couple of things here as we wrap up. So number one, we have two uh, vital questions that we ask all of our guests, and and you may recall uh, that this podcast is called 
Beethoven walks into a bar. So we always ask our our guests uh, at the end of the conversation, uh, what number one, what is your favorite beverage, either you know, alcoholic, non-alcoholic, juice, tea, coffee, water, sangria, whatever it is. Um, and number two, the second part of that is if you were having uh, said beverage in an establishment with Mr. Beethoven, what would you want to ask Beethoven? <laughs> uh, I wonder if he would talk to me. First of all, I wonder if he's one of those, you know, open to being approached types. Um I'm a, I'm a, I'm an espresso nut. I love coffee places. So if you guys have recommendations on Kansas City, I'm sure you do because I think the last time I was there, I found great coffee. Like, also, just quick side note: like, I realize that finding coffee places in random cities where I'm working is part of what makes me feel sane because I'm away from my people. Like, I was just in New Zealand, and I go to this little coffee spot across the street, and the barista and I start laughing. And I immediately felt better. And I thought, gosh, I was a little depressed because I miss my family, I miss my people. But I went to talk to this place, this woman at this place, and I instantly feel better. So I'm like, coffee probably means human connection to me. Coffee people. Know? Yes, you found your coffee people. Those are just other, I found my coffee other people. people. <laughs> <laughs> we have great coffee people here in Kansas City. We do. We'll, we'll hook you up. Okay. You're going to tell me. Um, I like the first thought that came to mind is like, why that soprano part in Beethoven nine? Why did you do that? Like, what is that about? <laughs> no, but that's because he's not known for great vocal writing. I'm sure you've heard this like singers. That's the kind of common trope about Beethoven is like, ah, don't sing a lot of Beethoven. Um, but I think I would want to know who this mysterious love is. Who's the, the antifanic to the eternal beloved. I'd, I'd, I'd probably dig into the personal relationship a little bit because that would inform that piece for me. Um, and it probably would would open up a side of him that's different too because Beethoven is a little bit like God, I think, if you're a classical person. So it's like, how do you talk to God? Um, <laughs> you maybe don't ask about music, but... I think that's what I would ask about his personal life. Excellent answers. I don't think anybody has asked about his personal life, any no? of our guests so far, and I love that so much. <laughs> I want to know. Awesome. <laughs> uh, well, P.S., Mike, when you were talking about Kansas City, it like all came back to me. And I remember being on the stage. It wasn't in the beautiful um, oh, what's the name of the hall? I'm spacing on the hall. Is it the Hellsburg Hall? Hall. I thought it was. So it wasn't in beautiful Hellsburg Hall. It was before the hall. Oh, okay. And I'm, it was, yeah. And I remember because it was 2011. And I remember coming to the stage and thinking, like, is there breast milk on my dress? And I remember thinking, <laughs> it put me, it put me uniquely in the moment. And I thought, you know what? I was looking up at the balconies and the audience, making contact with them, and I thought. There might be, but that's okay. Like, I, I wasn't worried about some perfect high note. I was in the moment of connecting with the audience. And I remember thinking, like, how great being a parent, you know, informs my musicianship. Because I can't get precious. I can't get all perfect about, oh, I have to have a tuna fish sandwich and I have to sleep for 10 hours and then I have to be in the dark and I have to warm up for an hour and five minutes. No, I'm like, I'm there. I showed up. And I'm present with you all, you know, so you reminded me of that. Do you know what's so funny about that is, so that was in the Lyric, um, which was our home before here. And I actually, um, 
when I came to interview for my job here, I came here to interview in 2011, in the winter of 2011, like that January or something, while we were, the orchestra was still in the lyric and I had a four month old son and I had to, I had a whole day worth of interviews. So I had to pump in the, wow in the, uh, one of the dressing rooms at the lyric in between interviews. And I remember thinking that exact thing when I went into an interview with the whole operations department was, do I have breast milk on my jacket? <laughs> like, I remember like having that same wow. <laughs> conversation in my head. I, I have nothing to add to this conversation. No. <laughs> so Stephanie, I think you should uh, take us into the <laughs> next, uh, into the next uh, segment. <laughs> leave it to Stephanie to like always go there <laughs> so we haven't done a top five for a while it's a top five it's a top five it's the 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 top five it's walks into a bar and I think it'll be fun since we have Sasha here for each of us to name our top five works for solo voice or voices and orchestra. Sasha, yours can be all for mezzos if you want, or you can spread the love. And since you're the guest of honor, how about you go first? Gosh, I have many favorites. Oh, it's hard. It's hard because immediately I think of my voice type. I'm like, what's for mezzo and orchestra? Um, but I think the Strauss four last songs definitely has yep. to be in that. Uh, one of my most favorite things to sing for soloists, but it has choir too, is Damnation of Faust, Berlioz. So exciting. Um, I think the Berg seven early songs, probably two. And the Mahler, I'd probably pick the Wayfarer, Leader, Ines oh, yeah. and Gazellen, because it's just like so complete in 17 minutes. Um, gosh, and I have one last one. Okay, well, this one's going to be for mezzo which is uh, Les Nuits d'Ete by Berlioz, which is a kind of longish cycle, but it's so exciting to sing. And I just, I love Berlioz, as you can probably tell. So yeah. I'm, I've probably left a lot out, but those are the ones that first come to me. Well, those awesome. are good ones, for sure. So, uh, yeah, I mean, there's no way to make a definitive no. list of five here, but, but the ones that came to mind for me um, immediately, and it probably won't surprise that, most of these include some pretty good flute writing as well. Um, uh, number one is the is the lesser known Scheherazade of Ravel. So good. Yeah, it's an incredible piece of music. Um, and most of us, of course, uh, when we hear Scheherazade, think of the Rimsky-Korsakov tone poem. But um, this this piece is just incredible. Uh, I I have to include Mahler uh, Das Lied von der Erde. Uh, because because there's just no way for a flute player not to include that. Yes. Um, and then a little bit off the beaten path, largely because we recorded it quite a while ago, and I, I loved the piece even before we recorded it. Uh, it's called uh, The Deepest Desire. It's the composer's Jake Heggie, and uh, he wrote a whole opera called Dead Man Walking, which is based on uh, the story of Sister Helen Prejean. But this this piece... Uh, I think he wrote it, there are two versions, and I think he wrote it first just for flute, uh, voice, and piano, um, and then it became an orchestra piece later. I may have that backwards. Yeah, no, you're right. Am I right? Okay, good. I love being right. Um, (laughs) (laughs) um, 
And it's an incredible piece of music. It's the it, it's it's text written by by Sister Helen herself, and and he made it into this incredible song cycle. And I just think the piece is so so eerie and so moving in either version. Um, anyway, so that's that's one. Uh, the Britain War Requiem is a piece we did. Uh, it's one of those pieces that I may you know only get to play once in my life, and it's just. It, it it takes you somewhere else. Uh, mm. it, it's just, there's no other way to describe it. And um, I mean, you should listen to it on a recording. I don't think there's any way to get that piece. I want to say fully, but not even fully like half or mm-hmm. a quarter without just experiencing it live because yeah. it's just so powerful. Um, and, and then the last one, I, I'm just sort of obligated by contract to include Beethoven nine. <laughs> Well, you have to. I Definitely. mean, it's in the title of the show. I so, know. yes, you're, yeah. you're exactly right. Mike, you should listen to Spring Symphony by Britain, too. It's so awesome. Oh, yeah. It, yeah, it's kind of like a, a magnificence that War Requiem does. Sorry, Stephanie. No, that's awesome. I'm writing that down. Britain Spring Symphony. Um, well, I mean, I'm going to echo also just by contract the Beethoven 9 because, you know, that's that's where we are. Um, Sasha, your French is... is 100% better than mine, but the Cantaloupe songs. Um, so beautiful. What? How do I say the title of those? The yes, chans- yes. Chanson de Dover. Yes, yeah. Um, and we've, that's kind of close to me because uh, we did it um, when we were at Rice. Um, I don't know if Mike was on that program or not. Um, with uh, Susie, uh, Larry conducted. Wow. And I remember um, she that. came back. Yes. Yeah, and she came back and did it um, when we were in San Antonio. My husband was playing in San Antonio, and so we did that with Larry and Susie again, which was just, um, just so fun. Awesome. Um, the Strauss Four Last Songs, absolutely. And um, I, I have two that I'm actually looking forward to because um, we're actually doing them both next season with Joyce. But Joelle Thompson's "The Places We Leave," just. Uh, having after that conversation we had with Joel, I just I adore him and uh, I want to gorgeous s- soak up everything that he's written. Yeah, but then I'm also looking forward to uh, um, Joyce is going to do the Ives unanswered question for voice huh. and orchestra, and I'm uh, I haven't heard it yet. Cool, but I'm intrigued, and so we should all look forward to next season. And uh, <laughs> check that out as well. I'm really intrigued by that. So, um, yeah. That Joel piece is the one I was talking about with Larry yeah. before he passed away. We were talking yeah. about that piece. Oh. Um, yeah, Joel is just, I mean, you've you've heard his um, seven last words. Uh, that's the reason I commissioned him to do a yeah. song on my project. He's, he's one of my most favorite up yeah. and coming. I shouldn't say up and coming, but composers here relatively new to me yeah he's here (laughs) yeah um no that's just and an act i mean there's that his seven last words has been on my mind uh a lot this weekend especially mike and i have been chatting just Mm. about an incident here in kansas city just um over the weekend that's you know making this pretty relevant too so yeah really looking forward to that and uh and and checking all of these out too well, Sasha, this has been so great. We thank you so much for taking this time. And uh, I'm really looking forward to seeing you here in Kansas City again. Uh, looking forward to the Hindemith and uh, the rest of the program, the Haydn and Holst. And uh, we'll have to point you in the direction of some great coffee and great coffee Deal. people. You can find awesome. your people. 
Maybe we'll have one <laughs> together. I would love that. Thanks, you guys. Well, please remember to rate, review, and subscribe to Beethoven Walks Into a Bar. Sasha and baritone Scott Hendricks will join the Kansas City Symphony and Chorus this weekend, April 21st through the 23rd, for Hindemith's When Lilacs Last in the Dooryard Blooms. Tickets are available at kcsymphony.org. Keep listening this season for more fun conversations like this one, this spring on Beethoven Walks Into a Bar.